Let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, is where you'll find our, our passage this morning. We are, uh, as, as Kyle prayed, uh, we are in the, really in the, the middle of our Next Step of Faith stewardship campaign. Many of you are aware of this already, but um, if you're just kind of uh, coming alongside Tabernacle and, and getting involved, then uh, that's, that's what all the language about Next Step of Faith is about. We are uh, moving toward November 20th. November 20th is, you know, for lack of a better uh, description, that's the Commitment Sunday. And uh, if you're going to participate, you'll be given a a commitment card. And it'll be your choice whether or not you want to participate in any way. We're asking everyone to pray what would be a a joyful and sacrificial way for me to uh, to partner with what God's purposes are for Tabernacle, um, and we are looking forward to all the uh, the things that we can do in answer to the prayer, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Um, there's things that I think God's leading Tabernacle to do that if we can uh, use resources that we're currently paying on the mortgage and set those toward ministry, it would it would be phenomenal. Um, your gift is uh, it's up to you. We won't know if you give. Uh, And if you do give, we won't know how much you give, with the exception of one person who's really good at keeping secrets, and that's our treasurer. Somebody's got to know, all right, Uh, for you to get your tax, uh, your your, uh, statement at the end of the year. But I do want to assure you, this is really between you and the Lord. Uh, If you want to know more about the campaign, uh, we've got a video posted on the website uh, that I think is a great summary, just cast the vision for this. Uh, at the end of the day, what we want this to be is a, a means of growing as disciples. That's why we're calling it uh, a stewardship campaign rather than a capital campaign. It's, it's really something we're doing as stewards to try to grow in our identity and understanding that everything we have is God's. And that's how we're going to grow as disciples. Um, so we're praying. We're asking you to pray. We're having a prayer vigil. And uh, we're doing this series on stewardship that I've never done before. I've never done a series, on, a series on stewardship because, as I uh, said uh, earlier uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, I've, I've been afraid to do this. And I've worried that people would have their stereotype of a greedy pastor or, you know, the church is only concerned about your money. Uh, we'd have that stereotype reinforced. And in seeking a good goal, which is not to reinforce a bad stereotype, um, I've ended up at a, a lousy end, which is... Um, you know, almost 15 years of ministry here without ever really doing anything systematic or uh, purposeful beyond, you know, applications at the end of a sermon about money. I've never done anything um, like a series or anything intentional, as I said, about our discipleship with regard to money. It's something Jesus talked about 15% of the time, more than any other subject, uh, and I've neglected it, and I'm sorry for that. Um, So hopefully, as we're growing as disciples, uh, we're going to get a a real uh, help here in 2 Corinthians 8. What we actually are seeing in this passage is a stewardship campaign. Paul is raising funds. Let me give you the context briefly. He's raising funds to relieve uh, the needs of the Christians in Jerusalem. And he's going all throughout uh, Greece, all throughout Macedonia, all throughout Galatia, to all the churches that, uh, that he's pastored there, asking them to contribute uh, something for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And he's doing it so that not only can those needs be met, those who are suffering uh, either 
famine or persecution and hardship in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8. But he's also doing it as a way to express solidarity between those in Jerusalem who have come to Christ out of a Jewish background and those all throughout the um, Macedonian and um, uh, Grecian and Galatian world who have largely come to Christ from a non-Jewish background and as an expression of solidarity for each other. That's the context here. Paul is following up on his initial request in 1 Corinthians for them to start a campaign. Let's stand in honor of God's word and hear how he encourages them to continue. This is verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let me pray. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word? Would you bear much fruit in the hearts of your people? Would you get glory in our words and our actions and our generosity? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this is a passage that's um, where, where Paul's writing to the Corinthians, but he's talking about the Macedonians, and he's using the example of the Macedonians to inspire the Corinthians on behalf of the folks in Jerusalem. A little complicated. All right. Um, let's start with the Macedonians and his description of their generosity. And then I want to talk about what's going on in Corinth. Uh, and then look at basically the, the grace of Jesus to us, where, where Paul you know, lands there in, uh, in verse 9. Um, the Macedonians, as you, as you see, um, Paul uses a couple of ways to describe what's going on there. He describes their poverty, um, that uh, God had given them grace uh, for in a severe test of affliction, the, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. So this is a church uh, that's, that's hurting a little bit. Um, this is a church that has experienced a depression. Um, the whole Macedonian region includes cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Uh, and these are cities that Paul has visited personally. He's even planted churches in them. Uh, we have letters that Paul wrote to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians, 
the Bereans received correspondence from Paul as well. We don't, we don't have that under New Testament, but he was writing to all these churches. He knows them well. He knows their circumstances. Uh, he knew they were struggling. They were suffering uh, because of this depression in that area. Um, Macedonia, a couple of centuries beforehand, uh, had struck gold. Uh, it was like the California gold rush. Uh, Macedonia uh, was flourishing at that time, and uh, Philippi became a capital of that region for Rome. Uh, there was a lot of rich uh, trade going through there, and, and, and gold was um, you know, in abundance, and then those mines went dry, and Macedonia went from riches to rags. Paul's writing to them, and talking, uh, writing about them, talking about despite their, uh, their affliction, which is incredible, uh, and their, uh, their poverty, which is extreme, uses, doesn't just say, hey, they were afflicted, hey, they were poor. You know, he adds qualifiers to help us understand the depth of that. He's saying despite all that, you know, um, God was at work. One way to think about uh, Macedonia maybe is to think about Detroit. Um, here at the beginning of the 21st century, in 1950, uh, there were almost one and a half million people in Detroit, and you had the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. Uh, and now, you know, the auto industry is really uh, bottomed out. And so in 50 years, uh, Detroit has lost 60% of its population. Um, and, you know, that city filed, like, the largest... Uh, bankruptcy claim for any municipality, et cetera. So just think of, you know, Philippi, Thessalonica, Macedonia, like Detroit. Used to be booming, it was boom town, and, and now they're, they're struggling. There's bankruptcy everywhere, and, uh, and, and people are experiencing what Paul describes as extreme poverty and a severe test of affliction. Um, interestingly and uncomfortably, Paul says that this poverty and this affliction both happen as according to the grace of God given to them. You see that in verses 1 and 2? This is according to God's grace to them. And that makes me pause. I, th- I think it would make anybody pause and ask the question, how can this be God's grace to them to suffer this way? How can any suffering be a gift? Paul wrote to the Philippians in Macedonia in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It has been granted or gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And, uh, you know, I'm allergic to verses like that. Um, but here's what's going on. How can that be grace? How can that be a gift? Well, you look at the fruit. Basically, you can judge what God was doing in their hearts through the severity of their affliction. What does he say happens? they experience abundance of joy. Through the, ex, uh, the extreme nature of their poverty, what, what happens as a result? This, this wealth of generosity. I love that pairing of words. A wealth of generosity. And that's why it's a gift. God's at work in them through what are otherwise um, hard circumstances to bring about what, what wouldn't happen apart from those circumstances. There is uh, an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity that can only happen through the gospel, experienced in uh, an example of suffering. That happens century after century and country after country where the church predominantly over the years has been a suffering church. And it's rare that the church is a comfortable church. 
Uh, and the church grows, as missiologists will tell you, the church has this curious tendency to grow and multiply and be strengthened in periods of affliction. And uh, that happens even today in places where it's illegal to worship. Uh, people are persecuted when, when they worship. Uh, and yet there is abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. Which Paul talks about in verse 3. Uh, expands on, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then even beyond their means. And, uh, and he says in verse 5 that they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. That uh, They didn't just give according to their means, they just didn't give out of their comfort zone, but they gave when it was even uncomfortable. They gave until it hurt. They gave uh, also of themselves They gave themselves to the Lord. They weren't just giving to the saints in Jerusalem. They weren't just giving to the church like we were talking about last week. This was an offering to God. And then, secondly, uh, to Paul for this cause, for the stewardship campaign. So as they're thinking about giving themselves, um, uh, they're an example of what you see um, when when Kathy and I, we we went to Richmond two Fridays ago. Uh, She took me out on on a birthday date. So uh, we like to go to Richmond sometimes uh, for a day trip, and we go to the museum, and the Fabergé egg collection is back. It had been um, away for five years on tour, uh, most recently has been in China. And so it's come back uh, to the VMFA, new exhibit, expanded exhibit, and there are five Fabergé eggs there. One of them is the uh, Dowager egg, which has a pelican on the top with some chicks below her, and uh, all the Fabergé eggs are uh, notable because there's this little surprise inside. So you open it up and it unfolds. The whole egg unfolds and it's got pictures of um, St. Petersburg. I don't know. The eggs were made um, in, uh, basically the turn of the 20th and uh, the 19th century. Uh, and uh, they were gifts from the, the royal family. Uh, Nicholas II and his family, his wife, they would give eggs back and forth to each other. I think there were 53 eggs made, 47 still exist. Um, Some, we believe, were destroyed in the Bolshevik Revolution uh, where Nicholas and his family were all executed. This is what's left. And um, you know that uh, Russia uh, is part of the Orthodox Church, and that pelican on the top of the egg is a picture uh, that has its origins in the, the legend of the pelican, that the pelican, uh, in times of difficulty, if you know, she needs to feed her brood, uh, if there's food that's scarce, what she would do would, would with her beak, you know, pluck her you know, feathers from her, her stomach, and then with her beak, draw blood and feed her brood with her blood. Can you imagine how that's very understandably uh, taken by the church to be a picture of what Christ has done for us, to feed us with his body and blood. And so it became an image that was used in a lot of iconography, so stained glass and mosaics and and so on. Uh, This is a picture of giving of yourself, right? I mean, giving until it hurts. That's what Jesus, of course, did on the cross. It's what happens when, you know, a mother makes sacrifices for her young um, and this is what the, the Macedonian church is demonstrating. And it's often the case, by the way, uh, that those who are poor tend to understand the nature of sacrifice even more than those who are rich. Uh, in uh, an, 
a story from Fox Business. Um, this was in 2013. It was reporting on this article in The Atlantic. Uh, it was, it's a journal written in 2011 sharing how Americans with earnings in the top 20% of income levels, uh, that they contributed on average blank amount to charity. What, what percent of their income did the top 20% of Americans, the wealthiest of Americans, give toward charitable giving in 2011? What percent do you think? Guys are stealing my thunder. All right, Uh, so it was 1.3%. 1.3% of the richest of Americans, you know, that the richest of Americans gave 1.3% to charity. Which, okay, you're talking about the wealthiest of the wealthy. It's a lot of money, quantitatively. But qualitatively, what was surprising is that the bottom 20% of Americans gave two and a half times as much, percentage-wise, as the richest ones. So they were giving 3.2% of their income to charitable causes, the bottom 20%, the poorest of Americans. The richest of Americans were giving 1.3% of their money. Um, So, yeah, the richest probably had a greater amount in dollars that they gave to charity, but the poorest of Americans gave qualitatively more gave of themselves, uh, gave until it hurts, so to speak. Uh, And this isn't surprising to us. This has been going on for centuries. And Jesus even pointed out uh, in the temple, he 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 calls his disciples together. He says, all right, I want you to look over here and see the rich who are making their gifts at the temple and putting their gifts into the box. And maybe they were making a show of it. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, hey, you know, when you give a gift, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. And that's important, Uh, and it's part of why, you know, we are keeping things uh, confidential in terms of the giving and the stewardship campaign, so that nobody's really got that that excuse to to boast or brag about it. And then Jesus says, all right, so you see the rich giving their gifts, and now I want you to look at this widow, the poorest of the poor. Widows, orphans, you know, were the substrata of the poor. Um, the, the 1%, below the 20%, um, below the 19 you know, on the bottom. The poorest of the poor, she puts in two small copper coins, which amounts to nothing economically, but in Jesus' eyes is everything. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the rich, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She made a sacrifice. Um, it wasn't about the size of the gift. It was about the size of the sacrifice that, that impressed Jesus. She calls her uh, and, and points her out as an example of the kind of, of sacrifice that, uh, that he was uh, impressed by. Um, the poor are more generous than the rich generally. Uh, and we see this demonstrated through Jesus and even, <laughs> even in Fox Business. So let's now talk about the Corinthians. Uh, Paul has praised the Macedonians for their level of sacrifice and the wealth of generosity. And now he's talking to the Corinthians saying, all right, we're going to turn here, verse 6, accordingly, transitional word, we urged Titus 
that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Translation, your turn, you know, to the Corinthians. Um, now it's your turn. Uh, Paul, at the end of, um, of his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16, had given instructions about the, this uh, campaign beginning. And it's a year or so later, and he has sent Titus to finish the collection. And when Paul comes through Corinth, he's going to take that on to Jerusalem. And he's urging them uh, to complete among you this act of grace. Um, the parallel, the, con- the comparison here with Macedonia is that Paul has to urge uh, the, the Corinthians to finish what they had started, but Macedonia had urged Paul, can we please participate you know, in this campaign? Uh, they, in verse 4, they begged earnestly uh, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, Corinth especially uh, is, a, is another place of contrast here compared to, to Detroit. Um, you know, uh, Corinth is New York. Two harbors, tons of trade, capital city uh, also, as Philippi was, but instead of the capital of an impoverished community, uh, an impoverished region, Corinth is the capital of a really, really wealthy region. Uh, and so this is Paul writing to the, the church in New York uh, saying, hey, I want you to see the sacrificial efforts of the church in Detroit. And, uh, and Paul uses that as an example. Now, remember, Jesus said, wait a minute, don't let your, left, your right hand know what your left hand is giving. Don't make a show of your giving. So why is Paul pointing to the Macedonians and telling the Corinthians, hey, look at their giving, and um, I want to spur you on uh, to, to do likewise? Well, there is power and godliness in having a healthy example that's humble and that isn't drawing attention to yourself but is instead pointing to God as the one who gets glory. So Jesus again, same one who said, all right, you know, do your giving uh, with humility uh, and don't be boastful about it, also tells his disciples, you're the light of the world. City on a hill can't be hidden. You don't put the light under a bushel. Instead, do your good deeds before uh, men so that they might praise your Father who is in heaven. A little bit of a balancing act. Here's the takeaway for us. It's okay, and it's a good thing for Paul to point to the Macedonians on behalf of the Corinthians and for us to look at the Macedonians as an example, a model of grace, because we need discipling. We need to know about what does this look like. How do we give? What, is, what does it mean to give joyfully and sacrificially like the Macedonians did? Uh, Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book called Heaven that I, I think many of you are familiar with, big book, has also written a little book called The Treasure Principle. Really helpful when it comes to money. And he says this, think about it. How does a young Christian in the church learn to give? Where can he go to see what giving looks like in the life of a believer captivated by Christ? Why are we surprised then when, seeing no other example, he takes his cues from a materialistic society? We're to consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, quoting Hebrews 10. Shouldn't we also be asking how we can spur one another on toward giving? 
Yes, we should be asking that question. And yes, Paul should be pointing to the Macedonians so that the Corinthians get motivation and get inspiration for their own uh, joyful sacrifice. Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 7, um, uh, and this is fun, <laughs> listen to this, as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Uh, if, you, if you know Paul's writings, his letters to the Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians, there's a lot in there about spiritual gifts. Uh, there's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And Corinth is a sort of a, a church gone, gone a little wild, and, uh, and there's some crazy stuff going on. So Paul commends them, and he, and he talks about their spiritual gifts, like one of you has a word of wisdom. And you, you use that in worship. One of you has uh, a word of knowledge, and you use that in worship. Uh, one of you prophesies, uh, and you use that in worship. One of you uh, speaks in tongues, and you do that in worship. Another one of you interprets, and you do that in worship. All of these things have one thing in common. And they all have to do with just words. And Paul says, just as you excel in talking... <laughs> Excel also, exceed in this, this grace of, of giving. Um, you know, just plain and simple way of putting it, put your money where your mouth is. Prove it. Prove um, that your love is genuine, is, uh, is what he says in verse 8. I say this not as a command. He's not trying to strong arm anybody or corner anyone. He's just saying, be consistent. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So, see that you excel. Literally, the word is to overflow or to have leftovers. I like that. Have leftovers in this act of grace also. Give so much that there's leftover, you know, that Jerusalem's going to say, we're good. We're great. Thank you for the help. And let your love also, just like the Macedonians demonstrated the genuineness of their generosity, let your love be genuinely generous as well. Um, in the front of the bulletin, I had a little thing about, you know, no one is generous in theory. Um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, uh, who thinks she's a great pianist if she had ever learned to play, um, but still wants people to admire her um, hy- hypothetical prowess. You know, I mean, no one is generous in theory. Nobody is a great virtuoso in theory. You either are or you aren't, and the proof is in what you do. Uh, so no one is, uh, is generous in theory. Uh, when we think about money, we are surrounded. We are just absolutely inundated with messages like these. This is the, uh, the latest Costco Connection magazine. Great reading. Um, there is a, a one-page article, uh, Financial Advice, Financial Connection by Susie Orman. You know her, most of you, I think. And uh, so these are little letters that are sent in. She answers questions. Here's one. I'm 34, married and have two children. In two weeks, I will be starting a new job at a considerably higher salary than in my current role. The new base salary is $225,000 versus current salary of $160,000. Great. I have about $65,000 in a 401k and no other investments. My husband and I own our home and owe about $150,000 in the mortgage, and our interest rate is only 2%. 
We've got two car loans around four and a half percent, but we pay off our credit cards monthly. Ideally, with this increase, we want to save instead of increased spending. Where should we invest? And how much should we try to put away? It's good questions. Good, good situation. All of us are envious. All right, so Susie Orman's answer. The best move you can make is to not change your spending habits at all. It's great advice. Try to live as if you were bringing home what you were making before this new job. Great advice. That way you will definitely be living well below your means and freeing up money to build your family's security. You asked me about investing, but I first want to make sure that you have protected your family. That means having a will, a revocable living trust, and term life insurance policies for you and your husband. Great advice. If you don't have a will, get a will. If you don't have life insurance, get life insurance. We need those things. Next, pay off the car loans. That's a 4.5% guaranteed return on your money. Just wise to pay off those debts. Once the loans are paid off, keep making the payments to your own savings account, and that's the money you'll use to buy your next cars with cash. Great advice. Good stuff. One more thing, and then my point. Now on to the investing. Assuming you've got a 401k, max that out, yada, yada, and then she's done with her advice. So if you get a promotion and you're given an extra $60,000, the prudent thing to do is, of course, not to just automatically bump up your standard of living and and spend that much more every year. Susie Oyman's saying the prudent thing to do is to save, pay off your loans, et cetera. What's missing? Give it away. Be genuinely generous. You get a raise and you think, wow, this is great. Yeah, maybe there are some needs that have piled up. You know, you've got them, I've got them. We all have probably bills that we can pay. But when you get a raise, be thinking, Lord, what can I do? What, what else can I do to bless your people, uh, to be just ridiculously generous? What can I do to, to, to increase your glory and the fame of your name by having people recognize that God's people are ridiculously generous. Wouldn't it be a great reputation for Tabernacle to have in this community? Oh, I go to Tabernacle. Oh, you go to Tabernacle? These people are crazy generous. You guys are awesome. Or what about that reputation in your family? You're the one in your family that everybody knows, you know, man, I just really admire how much they give away. Not because you get the, the, the fame, but because people also know that, oh, by the way, you follow Jesus, and Jesus is the difference between those who are ridiculously generous versus those who are giving away 1.3% to charitable causes. Where does that come from? It comes from giving of ourselves, not just from the surplus, but really where it starts to hurt. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just list off some things that really shouldn't even hurt that much, but they do, and, and I'll confess they, they do for me just as much as they probably do you too. In, the, in your bulletin on my outline, I listed a couple of these just, just to give you an example of some ways that you and I can be thinking about how can I be genuinely generous? No one is generous in theory, and if I want to be a generous person, it means that I need to start thinking more creatively about where I'm giving, how I'm giving, what I'm spending, and maybe how I can use that money differently. So, for instance, if you're in the habit of every day swinging into Starbucks and getting a mocha cuppa grande frappuccino with 
room for cream, uh, you're going to spend about $3 a day or more, and, you know, 30 days in a month. Um, so $90 a month, you know, we're talking about $1,080 or $1, a year just, just on coffee if you do it every day. What if you buy lunch every day? All right, $5 is a very modest lunch. Uh, and maybe you decide, I don't feel like packing I'm going to just grab a quick lunch today, and that becomes a habit. And so every day, five days a week, 20 days a month, you're, you're buying lunch out, $100 a month, $1,200 a year just, just on burgers or whatever. How about dinner out um, once a week? Uh, maybe that's 40 bucks for some of you. Maybe that's 50 bucks for some of you. Maybe that's 20 bucks for some of you, whatever it is. If it's 40 you know, once a week, 160 a month, almost $2,000 a year just on going out to dinner. Uh, once a week, and maybe if you go out more than once a week, what would it look, back, look like to cut back some of that? Um, a new outfit, new shoes, new bag, that adds up, you know, and, uh, and so even if you just thought, what if, what if I just cut some of that in half? Um, you know, what if instead of getting a, a mani-pedi, you know, every month, um, spending, getting my nails done, I'll just, you know, every other month, or what if instead of uh, going um, to play golf, you know, every week, what if I cut back, you know, every other week or something? So it just takes thinking like that, and, um, and I, I'm hopefully stepping on everybody's toes. I'm stepping on my own. I want you to know that. Um, and then you get into some bigger questions, like, man, do I need this big a house? Why do I have, like, 18 bedrooms? Why do I need all these bedrooms? Um, why, do I, why do I have all these cars? Um, why do I have... Uh, why do I need a new car every three to five years? Is it okay to, to, to drive a jalopy? Um, uh, I'm testimony that it is. It's okay. Um, you won't die. Um, do I need to retire at 60? Maybe I can retire at 65. No, maybe I, can, maybe I can bump that back even further. And, you know, my savings account's okay, but, man, now I get to use the money that I'm making and just spend so much more uh, on what's going to bless people. And give it away and be this, this you know, genuinely generous kind of person. Um, it's going to, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm giving ideas and just shouting out some, some uh, possibilities. When David, you know, you know the story, I think, from Second Samuel. He's going and averting a plague. Um, and, he, and he goes to make a sacrifice. And he wants to, to buy the, the threshing floor from a guy named Aruna. And Aruna just wants to give him the threshing floor, give him the cattle. Basically, Aruna's saying, I want you to take my entire livelihood because you are the king and I want to honor you. And David could have said, hey, thanks so much. And David says, no. I am not going to make sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. I've got to cut into my lifestyle somehow if I'm going to be genuinely generous. Just like it cut into the life of Jesus a lot a bit to be genuinely generous. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Um, ultimately, you don't just compare your love or genuine generosity with Macedonia or with, you know, whoever it is that's setting a pace for you. Ultimately, we need to look at Jesus, but, but not, not just 
for comparative purposes, he gave everything, right? So if our goal is to just simply compare our generosity with Jesus, guess what? All of us fall short. And if that is your hope to be like Jesus and just as generous as Jesus, you're going to fail. And it's going to be a weight that's going to be intolerable for you. Jesus is an example. But let me see the, the, the picture again of the stork. And I want you to see that we, at the end of the day, cannot compare ourselves with the stork, uh, or the, the uh, pelican, sorry. Our comparison is, is, isn't so much with the, the bird who's you know, offering um, its own blood to feed the brood. Uh, our comparison, our likeness is the brood. You and I are the chick. And we've been fed and sacrificed for. And unless you understand that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you, that you were the recipient of his generosity, the recipient of his genuine love for you, um, you and I are never really going to understand joyful sacrifice until we see ourselves as those who are needy and poor. And Jesus gave his riches for us. It's not going to mean much. Until we see ourselves as the orphan who Jesus accomplished our adoption through his work on the cross, it's not going to mean much. We're not going to feel solidarity for the poor. We're going to feel superior. We're going to say, here's a trinket, here's a token, instead of here's blood. <laughs> here's something that cuts and hurts and is a part of me that I want to share with you. Until we know that we were the prisoners, until we know that we were the aliens and the strangers, until we know that we were the lost, it's all going to be patronizing. It won't be genuinely generous. It'll be from the surplus. It's not going to, we're not going to give until it hurts because we're not mindful of how much Jesus gave for us. If your trust is in him, he gave everything for you so that you can be righteous through faith in him. And until you trust in him, until you believe that, there's no way to be radically generous, as generous as, uh, as we want to be. Sacrifice, I know, is an S word to many of us. It's to me. I'm allergic to it. We don't like to make sacrifices. I mean, I'd rather enjoy benefits. But what a sacrifice is, is it's a deferred gratification. A deferred gratification that means we sacrifice time or money or sleep or whatever in order to accomplish goals that will bless others. That's what Jesus did. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his life in order to accomplish his kingdom goals, to save sinners, to build the church, to bring glory and honor to his Father, to defeat his enemies. And so likewise, as his disciples, stewards of all that he possesses, that he's loaning to us, what is God calling you and me to sacrifice to reach our kingdom goals? In Christ's name, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us your body and your blood through Jesus. That our likeness is not so much the, the pelican, but the brood. And that we need your grace. If we don't receive that grace, we can't, uh, we can't relate to those that need it around us. Um, we won't ever become genuinely generous. And Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to rejoice in all that you've done for us. Help our our lives to be ones of worship and honor and glory to you so that our money uh, will be in a right um, relationship with you. Lord, would you get glory through tabernacle? Would you get glory through each one of us? And 
as we seek to, to bless those around us and as we seek to be joyfully and genuinely generous with our things, not just our money, but our time and our words and our attitudes, Lord, all these things that you call us to be stewards of. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would move mightily at Tabernacle for uh, ministry to our community and to the world, and that you would uh, lead us uh, as we continue uh, to seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen.